Welcome to our third episode of 2018. Uh, today we have a small change. Uh, Marco wasn't able to join us today, but we have Vitor and we actually have a very special guest. Uh, I'll actually pass it over to Vitor so you can do the intro of our guest. Vitor? Oh, thank you very much, Tiago. Uh, so, um, our guest today is Paul Loriano Santos. Um, he is, a, he is a, 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 an old friend um, that, uh, well, we've met, I don't know, almost 15 years ago, something like that, uh, at uh, an open office conference in uh, my birth city back in Portugal. Um, he was one of the speakers that I invited to, uh, to, to be there. Um, huge crowds over there just to, to, uh, to watch and to uh, listen to Paulo. And um, we've been, uh, I think, friends since then. We've been doing uh, some stuff uh, together meanwhile. But Paulo is, um, um, he, well, he can introduce himself, but uh, he works for, for full, full, full IT. Uh, uh, before it was Mr. Net, uh, as I believe. Now he has a new, a new company, a new name. And um, and he does he does a lot of good things, and uh, he's one of the one of the good guys from the old days of the of the internet back in Portugal. Paul, maybe you can introduce yourself better than me. Yeah, it's basically it. Uh, an internet pioneer in Portugal, one of the first guys to actually work at an ISP, uh, and it was fun. But long story short, uh, an hacker by choice and a CEO. <laughs> because trade. life mandated it, yeah. Uh, so, so what do you do these days, Paulo? I, I know that you used to do ISP stuff um, long before I was messing around with this computer stuff, but what about these days? Are you still involved in ISP stuff? Are you doing something different? No, basically I'm a problem solver, uh, like Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction. Uh, I met people, uh, I meet people with problems, and if they are interesting, basically I put my team working on them. Uh, the, the more interesting the problem, the more I love it, so that, that's basically my life. Uh, some examples, uh, TAP, the, the Portuguese national carrier, uh, needed to sell tickets, but basically the entire business of the aviation industry was based on uh, travel agencies selling the airplane tickets. Uh, when I got there, TAP sold a tiny percentage of the tickets. Uh, when I left the company, and I still haven't left. But basically, in 2018, they sell they sell around 95% of the tickets themselves. So it was an interesting problem. I liked it, and I've been involved with those guys, like many others, for a couple of years. Yeah. Great. Um, and 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 Tiago Paulo also has one of those interesting podcasts and videocasts also on YouTube, um, where he talk about where he talks about games, about um, things from the 80s and 90s and the early days of the internet as well. And, and about hacking as well. I know, I know. Uh, I actually saw a couple of days ago uh, when you told me that we were going to have Paul on the show, you know, I thought I would explore a little bit about the stuff he was doing. And I saw this really interesting video he made about hacking in the 80s. And I'll make sure that the link is in the description, but I suggest that everyone actually go and see that because it is a really interesting and funny, lots of different funny stories in there. Um, so you had a really interesting past, <laughs> that's to say. Um, so, Paul, I wanted to ask you one question. So the name of our, of our podcast here is Going Digital, and it's really about all the movement of digitization uh, that is happening now. But I'm also guessing that you've seen something similar before, right? Before when people weren't using the Internet and computers, when they started incorporating these into the enterprise, do you see any similarities to this transformation? What do you think is the bigger difference now? Why is so 
that why is there such a big focus now on digitization? There is no difference, basically. Uh, we have the same problems now that we had in the 80s, uh, only in different formats. I'll give you an example. Uh, the most dangerous vectors of attack uh, from hackers to a company are still exactly the same. It's basically social engineering. Uh, they replaced the ancient uh, telefaxes and whatever, uh, telling people what to do with email. And basically the phone is still here. And the phone is still the most dangerous tool on inside a company. You would be surprised how much stuff you can get from people on the phone. From passwords to making them transfer money, everything. I remember before the internet I needed uh, an access to the X25 network in Portugal. And I was 16 years old, I picked up the phone and I got like 12 different ones. So I always had access to the world networks way before the internet. And, and just with a phone and and it's it's actually uh, a bit of a mistake that people still do these days in my opinion you know, that they they go oh I have a computer at home and then I have a phone well no you've got two computers it's just one of them is able to do calls via the old phone lines as well you know what yeah. we have these uh, days are fully blown computers on your pocket yeah but besides uh, besides that even if they were ancient technology like smoke signals whatever if you can communicate with a person and the person is always the weakest link in terms of, sec of security inside a company. If you can communicate with them, you can get whatever you want. All you need to know is a little bit about social engineering. I would recommend the Kevin Mitnick books because you do learn a lot from him. Uh, he was one of the pioneers at the same time that I was doing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you, you also, uh, if I'm correct, opened your maybe not your current company but other companies in the past right uh when was it that yeah. you founded your first company i think it was 1997 or something like that uh, uh, and the company has changed names but it's still the same company <laughs> so uh what do you see you know that's different from opening a company back then to now everything we see with the startups because uh, from my side, you know, I opened, I opened my first startup three years ago and I already see some changes and I've only been doing this for three years in terms of owning a company and now with the whole ICO you, you can start forgetting a bit about VCs and you have an option instead of if you need to grow money you don't need to go to VCs anymore you can do an ICO and I'm guessing you see maybe more differences or maybe you don't and I'd like to hear a little bit about that. I think everything is faster nowadays. Uh, companies fail faster, which is good. Uh, they fail cheaper, which is good. Uh, and in the old days, everything was slower. Uh, the only problem today is that faster isn't always equivalent to good. Meaning, uh, if you had to wait a year for investors, you have a year to think about your plan. You have a year to refine it. You have a year to test things in your own home lab. And basically all that is gone because people jump at ideas way too soon and they put money in things way too soon. Which sounds nice for people starting companies, but it really isn't because there's a huge price to pay when you get capital in the company. Uh, let me just tell you this. If you have money or if you have family and friends that can give you money, make something with whatever you got. Uh, bring the capital as far 
later as possible because there's much to gain. What there isn't to gain is the risk and the comfort uh, because it's way, way easier if someone brings a couple of thousand bucks to the company in the early days. But that's not smart in my opinion. Well, if you if uh, taking uh, uh, Tiago as an example, so he started uh, his company uh, three years ago. I started mine well almost ten years ago, something like that, and um, it it was a failure. Period. So we we ran the company for a couple of years. We tried to do something, and back then, um, act actually, access to capital was quite hard for us. Um, um, uh, first of all, we we didn't have the three the, the three Fs: the family, the fools, and uh, and um, and the what what. Uh, Family fools and uh, friends, friends, friends maybe? exactly. Just me. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't have those uh, access to those. So um, we actually, we we decided to go with uh, with some uh, some capital outside of the company to support that. But what I'm what I'm seeing right now uh, within uh, well in Portugal is that there's a lot of um, easy ways to get money from uh, venture capital, from angel capital, and even from incubators or something something like that. I think that th this was one of the one of the things that I discussed with uh, with the other guy that, that isn't on this show today, uh, but um, it was about um, um, if you want to start a company right now in Portugal, you either um, uh, comply with the, the, those incubators kind of, uh, I would say, rules, otherwise you won't have access to any kind of capital because it will be really hard for you to have that. Is that the kind of feeling that you, that you have whilst being in Portugal and seeing this? Okay, I'm going to say a couple of things, but I would like to know about Tiago's experience. What I think, when I think about this, my feeling is this. Money, it's the easiest thing that you need when you form a company. People are much harder, skills are much harder to acquire for both yourself and your team. Money is the easy part. And you can do a lot with little money. And if your idea is really good, you instead of getting just money, get smart money. Smart money meaning people that bring much more than money to the company. They bring connections, they bring uh, know-how, they bring more people to complement your team because people are so hard to find and acquire. And in my opinion, people put way too much importance on money basically as an excuse to fail. Oh, I didn't have the resources. Uh, I didn't have a million in marketing to share the idea with the world. But in my personal opinion, those are all bad excuses. Money comes with a terrible price, which is the price that makes you rush results. You have to get to certain mile points, milestones in a certain time period. Mm. And that removes from the company the freedom to fail, the freedom to try things, see what works, close up whatever doesn't work and go with the good ideas. If you are against the wall and you need to fulfill a schedule that you designed yourself two years earlier when you didn't try anything at all, you basically get to the market sometimes with the worst ideas that you have in those two years, which is terrible. Control is everything, and people need to learn from failure. Failure is terribly important. Just look at Elon Musk and, and what he's doing with SpaceX. The guy celebrates each rocket that, that explodes. 
because he knows he learns from it. Failure is important. You cannot make a company succeed without several minor failures in there. And the truth is, most companies don't succeed and most companies have a time period when the stuff that they do works for the market. Um, My personal feeling, uh, money is way overrated. <laughs> yeah. So, um, before, before I make my comment on this, I would actually like to say that uh, very similar to the answers you just gave, I believe, Vitor, I saw a talk given by you that was all around failure, right? A private, a private talk, if I remember correctly, given like at the place where we work together. Uh, and he hit those points. And I, I would say I agree. I, I think um, money these days isn't hard to get, but at the same time, you can have a lot of money, but if you don't have a good product and people, it's not going to get you anywhere. Uh, exactly. the, the team is everything. And, and I, I think if you look around, the amount of startups that fail in a way prove that. In a way proves that these startups did not have a solid business plan or did not have a solid team. And yet you see that all these startups raised money. And it's not, we're not talking, you know, 100,000, 200,000, we're talking millions. Um, so I, I definitely agree that priorities should be team and product and then the money. Um, at the same time as well, I 100% agree with the smart money. Uh, from our side, we raised some capital in the beginning from a private investor that we thought was an interesting person. And then we've been growing organically with what clients pay us. Uh, we've been going at it for three years now. Uh, and we've just now, literally this month, raised some more money because we're now about to give another big jump. So we've been a data provider for these past three years and we're now going to start working as a platform for cyber insurance. And we needed some capital to hire a few extra people to work on that. So only now are we raising more money. Um, but I 100% agree. I don't think the money is everything. And I'm actually happy that it's it's easy to get money these days uh, because at least, you know, it's one less problem that founders have to deal with. Because dealing with team, dealing with a team, in my case, that remote has been a huge issue. Uh, we had lots of learnings. Uh, Mark, who usually joins us on this podcast, was a big part of us actually fixing our remote problems. Uh, he wrote some articles about that. I suggest that you guys go and read it as well on Medium. Uh, I'll make sure links are in the description. Um, but as a founder, you have so many issues you have to deal with from product, marketing, when to go in the market or not, who, what are your competitors doing, what is your team doing that, yeah, money should be you know the last issue on your mind. Um, but it's it's good to see you know the different opinions and how things have changed as well from before to now, um, and and I'm I'm actually very much enjoying following this whole ICO business. Uh, I think there there is a lot of big scams with ICOs, uh, but I also like looking at some cases that I think can have some future. That I believe there is a solid business case, which brings us to one of the topics we wanted to discuss today. Uh, we had the first uh, Portuguese crypto coin uh, launched uh, this week, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it's interesting to see this stuff happening in Portugal as well. Uh, Vidi, do you want to make a small comment on this? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, I have a mix of, of opinions regarding uh, ICOs. Um, um, I do understand the whole cryptocurrency kind of market and launching um, uh, these kind of ICOs to the market, just raise some money, uh, get some uh, some cryptocurrency uh, out of it. 
Um, to be honest, and looking at uh, the data that we have between today, yesterday, and the day before, um, the, the, the cryptocurrency market is not that good at the moment. Uh, I just fell, I don't know, 30% from uh, what it used to be. Um, but again, when we look at, um, at Portugal, I see two good things um, uh, there. First of all is that uh, the, the, um, uh, the Portuguese state just launched, well, the, the, the IRS just launched uh, um, a press release saying that cryptocurrencies are not taxed in, in Portugal, which means that everything that you can actually mine there in, in Portugal or can gain or any kind of investment that you have, you don't have, you're, not, you're not going to pay any tax with, uh, with that in the future. The second one is, do we actually need to launch an ICO? Uh, I, I, I don't understand what, well, I, I understand that the, the value that I get from that is something, like a share of that part of, of the cryptocurrency itself, but I don't see that, for me as an investor, I don't see that as a huge kind of gain in the future. I see that as, um, I wouldn't say a, a Ponzi scheme, but it's something kind of, Kind of related to that. Uh, smells like it, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It's, it sounds too good to be true. It, it's, right? impo it's important to and be careful is. with the wording as well, because it just said you gain a share of the cryptocurrency. But share is a, is a bad word to use because shares is usually with part of the company, and if it's that, it's an IPO. You have to have rules in ICOs. That's one of the, the first rules that they always teach you is do not promise that you're giving shares or uh, return on the profit uh, of your company because then you're talking IPO and it gets it gets taxed in the US as a security. So using the word share, usually the people from the SEOs are very careful about that stuff. Uh, but I find it interesting. I think I, I'm really enjoying the, how it's making VCs a bit optional to some startups. Uh. Concerning cryptocurrencies, uh, I have mixed feelings about it. First of all, let's clarify what people are actually buying. They are buying a code. A code which means I own something that this code represents. There's no company behind it. So unlike the stock market, you are not betting on a company. You are not betting on a horse. There's no horse. There's actually no paper. Uh, you actually own a piece of code. Okay. My feeling about this is that uh, the real money, which, by the way, are all fiat currencies, basically they are not indexed to anything, just like the cryptocurrencies are not indexed to, to anything, they are worth whatever people feel that they are worth. Okay? My feeling about this, about this is that the states are going to strike back. Uh, Unlike what Victor said about the Portuguese IRS, they basically don't understand a goddamn thing about cryptocurrency. So whatever they say, get it with a, a pinch of salt because basically it means nothing. And never believe the IRS when they talk about the future. <laughs> because they can't see the past, much less the future. Uh, the problem is everything that people own these days is controlled in text. Every transaction pays a fee to whatever government uh, it occurs or controls the territory. And basically every money is traced. Just look at the problems that Trump is facing with the Deutsche Bank. Everything is traced. The beauty about cryptocurrencies is the power to not be traceable. 
the power of anonymity. 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 Yeah. Uh, and I think the empire, the evil empire, is going to strike back because basically uh, creating currencies, creating laws, and imposing law and order are the three, the triad of every government on earth. When they understand that people are not using their money on their territory, we are going to have a problem. We are seeing this with South Korea at the moment. It's the, it's the first country to actually tell its citizens that they are going to prohibit everyone from owning or using cryptocurrency. Uh, and I think we're going to see this from pretty much the entire world. Where cryptocurrencies have a place, it's obviously when a fiat currency disappears, like in Venezuela or those kinds of crises and in those kinds of countries, people need something solid to trade with. So cryptocurrencies actually fill that role. But I have a tremendous problem with the current uh, virtual cryptocurrencies money, uh, which is the volatility of value. Let's, for instance, say that I want to buy a car from Tiago. And I tell him, okay, we are going to settle the price in bitcoins. I'm going to buy your car for a single bitcoin, $12,000 today. Uh, a week goes by and I give him the bitcoin. What happens if the value of that bitcoin actually goes down by 50% or goes up by 200%? If currency doesn't have stability in value, it's actually really hard to talk about the price of something in that currency. Meaning, I think cryptocurrencies, as they are today, without stability, they are actually useful to laundry money and make transactions, even from governments. But that's pretty much it. I don't think anyone can actually agree on a price of a deal in Bitcoin. Because it's suicide. Whether it goes up or down, it's suicide for one of the parts. And that's a really big problem. So, what I'm expecting to happen in this year, 2018, or the next few years, is governments striking back. They're going to strike back hard. They're going to create laws that actually make people, uh, by law, being mandated to declare whatever words they have in cryptocurrencies, which most people are not going to comply and they are going to chase them. And this is going to be a problem, a huge problem, because I have a lot of friends invested in investing in cryptocurrencies. Some of us, uh, my, uh, uh, Vitor has some common friends with me, and he knows about a few of them. Uh, and what I'm warning these people about is, yeah, I love to see you rich, but please don't use your supermarket money or the rent money yeah, just to, to invest yeah. because there's going to be a problem in the future. I don't know if you're going to make a fortune in the meantime. I hope so. I'm rooting for you, but trust me, <laughs> this is not going to end the way you think. Yeah. Uh, we're well, seeing in the US already some problems, right? Some people took mortgages or are fully using their credit cards to buy cryptocurrencies. And I'm sure those oh, people yesterday were sweating bullets even though today i i see markets are already getting green again but still uh it's it's too volatile yeah as much it's as much as I, would, I, I love the concept behind it um for now you know it, it's too volatile to be an actual coin 
Tiago, uh, what do you think it will happen if the US, for instance, announces the prohibition of bitcoins on and every cryptocurrency on Earth? It's done, it's over. Yeah, but the real problem is in every other country, the value of those currencies will plummet instantly. And that's a huge problem. The other huge problem is the way that the monetary system worldwide works today, because based on fiat currencies not indexed to anything, if there's a real crisis on the dollar, the entire world would be shaken. Yeah. And the reason why it didn't happen yet is because people are way too afraid of it happening. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, well, it's well, well, with cryptocurrencies, I have two, two problems at the moment. The first one is that I tried to buy a, a GPU the other day, and it was way expensive <laughs> just to get one. And, um, and uh, it, at Amazon, it was around 700 uh, pounds, and two days after, it was um, 1,200 pounds. So it, it increased the, the, the value of the GP, GPUs, and actually, at the moment, it is sold out. Um, you can't get any, any of those. The interesting thing is that if you go to Amazon uh, in the UK and you try to buy a GPU, there's, um, there's a small um, print there, the fine print that, that says that, um, I've seen it. that uh, if you're going to buy this, then you're going to be signaled to the police here in the UK because you're going to be tracked uh, probably in the future. Or if you're going to buy a lot, it's, it means that you're doing something kind of illegal. Guess why? <laughs> Guess why? Because governments are worried. Uh, and the reason you don't see anyone talking about it is because no one knows what the hell is going on. Basically, our politicians have no clue about what cryptocurrencies are or what, about blockchain or whatever technology is behind them. They have no clue at all. But they have their staff looking into it. And whenever they're briefed about the problems that cryptocurrencies cause, regarding the fiat currencies in those countries i think they will have and it will be ugly i, I think i think it's going to be a blood a bloodbath for both sides because i can see the people that own those cryptocurrencies you know not declaring it and trying to escape yeah. and you'll see a bunch yeah. of people getting arrested but at the same time i can also see it being a huge cost for the government actually trigger triggering those investigations because you know you look for example at uh, monero which you know the entire objective i think is to launder money you know because it's anonymous transactions all of that yeah it's going to be yeah. a huge cost for both sides yeah but people are basically doing the same thing with fiat currencies before the cryptocurrencies existed uh, if you look at the money laundering in the industry it's a big thing yeah and yeah it's costly and it's hard to investigate and you have to trace the money and subpoena banks in other countries and whatever but it's actually something that people have been arrested for several yeah. times in the last few years. So most people may get away with it, but not everyone. It's risky. Yeah, yeah, not everyone. It's risky. So probably going back to one of our themes that we 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 wanted to to discuss, and looking at the list, uh, we have uh, remote working. So we talk about startups. We talk about money. And probably, um, and because you already have a company there, Paulo, um, um, what's your feeling about remote working? Do you actually need all of your employees at the, at the same place working um, so that you can see them or you just give them free to, freedom to work from uh, wherever they, uh, they work from? Uh, 
Okay, I had my current CTO, Fernando, working from England, in the, he lived in London for three years in a row or something like that. And he controls basically the entire technical operation of the company. Uh, meaning, I don't mind having people working remotely because I judge people by what they deliver in terms of their work, not by their arriving on time or leaving on time or whatever. I don't think companies are structured uh, correctly. Uh, basically, I believe in stuff like people don't need to be friends. They don't actually need the, that corridor talk. Uh, they basically don't need to work together in the same location ever. What I think about, when I think about team building, I think about uh, collaboration where people build their own Lego blocks and they get together to put the Lego blocks in place and build something together. And people should be judged by the quality of the piece that they created, that they brought along to, to bring stuff. I work from home. I've been working from home like for 10 years or so. Uh, the only reason I leave home, home is to have meetings with customers. My personal opinion about it, I hate spending money in physical offices. Hate it. Companies are not about bricks <laughs> and cement uh, and buildings. Companies are not about making people wake up in the morning, face one hour of traffic just to get to work, and then another hour to get back home. Uh, I rather use those hours to have my people resting or be with their spouses or girlfriends or whatever, and make them happier. Because the happier they are, the, most, the more productive they will be in the company. Uh, and I hate, I, I possibly have loathe for the way traditional companies are run. Uh, when I see a company where people uh, actually have a pass and have to pick up the clock when they get in and <laughs> when they get out, that's wrong on so many levels. Mm -hmm. And really, if that's a criteria for evaluating people, these guys should, should actually go bankrupt because that's a <laughs> terrible criteria. Well, at the, at, at, at the company that I, that I work for at the moment, we have a bunch of offices around, um, around London. So actually one of our, um, uh, one of our offices is between uh, the central, uh, central London and, and the airport. So that if, if, you, if you get any kind of visitors from outside the UK, they can travel to the office quite fast so they don't have that kind of issue. Um, but usually the office is quite empty. So uh, there's no one there because we have the freedom to actually work from wherever we want to. Obviously, we need to be present at Skype, Skype meetings and, and phone yeah, calls sure. and that kind of stuff. And if you go to a client, well, we, we need to go to a client. We need to pick up the car or um, use public transportation for that. Um, but that's the kind of uh, uh, thing that I'm now used to. When I compare to the companies that I work in Portugal, we had to do that kind of... Um, uh, go at uh, 9 a.m. or 8.30 and leave at uh, 6.30 or 7 p.m. And because we were obliged to do that, we, we, the, it, it was the kind of the, the rule. Um, what's your, your experience with that, Tiago? Within your um, so I, I have a decided experience right now. So I've got Binary Edge. Um, some people know about this. I actually uh, dual job right now. So I'm running Binary Edge and at the same time... Um, uh, doing innovation for a big bank here in Switzerland um, and one of them uh, I go in 
Uh, I have my commute in the morning, I go in the train, I get to the office, I do my work, come out, come home. And the other is Binary Edge where for, you know, the entire team, I've got people in Lisbon, I've got some people, Mark who is in London, uh, we've got people in the Algarve, so we're, we're spread everywhere. So even if we wanted to have an office, uh, well, there was no way <laughs> because everyone's just spread everywhere. And it, it works out well. So my opinion in terms of remote work is that I think it can work, but I also think it's not for everyone. Uh, for us, we, we lost a lot of people in our team because remote work wasn't working for them. They needed someone to be there on top of them. They needed some, uh, someone to help them, to guide them physically there with them. Uh, for you to be a remote worker, you need to be super responsible. You need to know how to manage your time. You need to know how to manage your work. I think if you can do those things, it can work extremely well. And it can be great because you can be flexible with your time. If I feel like, you know, it's nice, it's sunny, let me go walk my dogs for a little bit longer. I just take a break at 3 p.m. And I go for a nice walk all the way to the natural park just behind here. And if it's snowing and, you know, maybe I want to go do some snowboarding, I go and do it. And when I come back, I work at night. Because another thing I also don't believe is that I don't think 9 to 5 is for everyone. Some people work better at night. That's my case. Some people work better in the morning. I've got people that like waking up at 6 a.m. and starting to work at 6 a.m. At 6 a.m., well, that's one hour after I went to bed. <laughs> so... Um, for us, it took us a long time, is what I said before. Marco was a big help on that. It took us a really long time to find a process where we could make it work for everyone. But now we're in a good place and it works really well. In regards to my second job, um, I think the whole going in, and I don't go in every day, um, at the same time also works because there is, there is lots of things that you need to do with the team all together. So... Just to give my final thought here, I think it depends on the team you're inserted in. At the end of the day, I think that's what it... Again, we go back to the team. It depends on the group of people you're working with, how they work. That's what it's going to change everything. Either it works or it don't. It doesn't matter if the company... Well, if the company accepts or not, of course it matters because you need permission to be able to work from home. But whether or not that is going to work depends on the people you're working with. People that work with me know from day one that I judge people by the end result. Exactly. Uh, it's a clear contract. I'm hiring you to do a certain thing and I'm going to pay you in a certain currency. Uh, not you wouldn't though. like if I didn't pay in the right currency, right? <laughs> or if the money was somehow, I don't know, painted in black. Uh, so don't give me back from your part of the deal something that isn't actually working, actually tested by you, and that you can put your life, your life on whatever you're delivering. Knowing this, people know that they have a huge responsibility. Uh, what happens in my personal experience over the past 30 years is that, yeah, it's not for everyone, but people that actually like to be judged by the quality of what they deliver, they work extra hard and they work sooner rather than later on a problem. Meaning they have, for instance, a month to deliver something. It's generally done in the first 15 days. And the, the other 15 days are spent by them working less, spending more time with the family, testing, debugging, making sure everything is working as it should. Uh, so that when the day arrives, when, when they are talking to me, uh, I can actually trust whatever they're delivering. This isn't for everyone, but it works really well for the people that it works for. Yeah.
Um, the last topic I wanted to talk about this episode, uh, and Paul, I know you're a big gaming fan. Uh, before yeah. I before I dive into the topic, tell us a little bit about how you know your gaming background and how you got there. Oh man, uh, I was like 15 years old when I saw the first arcade uh, in a shopping center. I fell in love with Pac-Man or, or Space Invaders. I don't recall which was the first one I actually saw. I fell in love with it. I spent every penny I could get as a child in the arcades. And one day I arrived at Friends, uh, Friends Place, Mario Volant, uh, and he had a, a ZX Spectrum, a small 8-bit home computer uh, that had computer games. And that changed my life. Basically, instead of spending money on the arcades, I held on to the money, I got a computer, and everything went uphill from there. I made my first computer game that I sold in shops uh, for the Commodore Amiga. I was 70, year, 70 years old, uh, and then I made a, a bunch of them. Uh, the, last, the latest one was Sudoku Live, a game that happened when the Sudoku craziness happened in the world, and it was sold all over the world in retail boxes, and I made it by myself alone. Every game that I made was not done by a team, was done out of passion by myself. <laughs> so the topic I wanted to discuss with you this week um, is about the new release from Nintendo. So Nintendo announced this week, for our listeners, Nintendo announced this week something called the Nintendo Labo. Essentially, they're going to provide some cardboard uh, setup where you can, you know, kind of put it out of the general cardboard like a mini puzzle, and then you integrate the Nintendo Switch, and you can make like a fishing rod, you can make a robot, and those will interact with the games. Uh, and Paul, I wanted to hear your opinion about this. I shared the video with you before the start of our episode. I wanted to hear your opinion about this because it's something uh, completely different, and I I'm not yet sure about my opinion on it. Because, and before I hear your opinion, I I'm going to give you mine so that I'm not biased afterwards. Um, okay, remember, uh, uh, if you remember when you started the podcast, I talked about how ideas mature. Yeah. Okay? Uh, this is one of those ideas that looks amazingly cool uh, when it first appeared. What's going to happen is that people are going to find out that actually having cardboard stuff creates its own problems. It's cheap at the beginning, uh, it's way too cool to resist, but uh, uh, one of the examples is a piano, a little piano made with a Nintendo uh, Switch. Uh, but people, as soon as they start playing on that piano, they are going to want more quality, better feedback from something that isn't, that isn't cardboard. But I think this, these things are so cool, so amazing, that they are worth of praise. Are they going to change the market? No, by a long shot. They are going to have the same place in the market that the Google cardboard. Uh, virtual reality uh, yeah. cardboard glasses have. Uh, basically, it's a cool thing that you can do very cheaply, but you will get the cheap results <laughs> from the money it costs. Yeah, yeah and, and that's actually what I agree with you. Um, because I, I see it in the same way I saw my Google cardboard glasses when I first got them. For the first two, three days, I was playing with them. I was going to Rome. The coolest was, thing yeah, exactly. ever. <laughs> I had my phone and I was going to different places, trying all these different demos. But then it went on my drawer after two or three days. And I never yeah. really touched it again. I threw it away a couple of days ago. And, and if, you, if you actually really want a virtual reality expensive, 
it doesn't cost five bucks. It costs five hundred <laughs> or three hundred bucks. Exactly. Yeah. And basically, that's what you have to pay if you want the real thing. But these things are so cool. But but they're also for, for a piece of cardboard. It's expensive because it, it yeah. so in the U.S. the variety kit will cost sixty nine ninety nine, and the robot kit seventy nine ninety nine. You're yeah, paying eighty bucks. They are selling bucks. expensive cardboard. It's a really expensive cardboard, right? Uh, and then you know you're gonna be eating some Cheetos while playing with this, and the cardboard is gonna get all dirty, and you have no way to wash it because the moment it touches any piece of water, it's gonna get go to crap yeah. because it's still cardboard. Um, so I see. I, I'm gonna try it. Uh, but I don't see a big future for this. Like I get the excitement, even watching the video, as I had this huge grin on my face because the video was really well done. But at the same time, then what, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Vitor, any comments from your side? Well, I think it's augmented reality uh, backwards, right? So it's just <laughs> augmented the reality that we should have with the, with the device itself, right? So it's going back. Uh, I don't know. It's it's the opposite thing of uh, of AR at the moment. But um, I'm I'm I I I'm, I think I'm gonna stick with my experience with uh, with games back from the from the 80s. I do have um, an Xbox, but I I don't use it that much. And for me, the game is will always be a championship manager. So period. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing better than that. <laughs> so uh, before before we let me yeah. just add something about this this cardboard <laughs> stuff. Uh, I love the idea. I'm going to spend 60 bucks on a piece of cardboard. That, that's a that's guaranteed. But basically, uh, what I love about this is the ingenuity, because people can actually build real models based on the cardboard stuff that they are building, Re real models with wood or plastic or whatever that actually last and that actually improve the quality of the stuff. Because everything that's electronic is the switch himself. It's the console that people already own. This is just something that you build in cardboard and you can replace the cardboard with something better. But the software is there, the hardware is there. The important stuff you can actually reuse and you can build a high quality piano with a switch and you can build a high quality fishing game or whatever. Uh, if you really like the ideas, you can expand on it. Uh, concerning the price of this, it's like collectible cards. Uh, if you look at Magic the Gathering, with the quality of printers that people have today, you can actually print every card that you want. But people are still buying it. Uh, and because most people are not builders, most people are not hackers, most people are incapable of looking at the cardboard and saying, well, wait a minute, I can get some wood and get the real thing working, or a much better thing working. But for guys like me and you guys, of course, this is just a model. This is an experiment with the software built in, with the sensors in the console itself. And you can actually build really cool stuff if you buy the model and look at it with builder eyes. Uh, um, now that you just mentioned that, I'm, I'm actually taking, like, because usually I'll, I'll jump on this. Like, it's the type of stuff that I said. I ended the video with a grin on my face, I'll jump on it. But at the same time, I'm thinking, I've got a 3D printer right here. Why don't I just yeah. 3D print the pieces and put something that you you'll last longer than the cardboard? Exactly, and it will be better looking and uh, have a better feeling when you exactly. touch it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, the, Paulo, uh, I have a couple more questions for you just before we actually finish the episode. So, the, Vitor just mentioned the AR. I wanted to get 
your input, AR, VR, fad, or something that we'll see actually evolving in the future? Oh, it will evolve. Uh, the problem is, right now as it stands, it's, it's way too expensive to make good sets of glasses, and it's way too expensive to have 60 frames per second in each eye <laughs> with a different image made with uh, the current computer generation. But it will evolve. This is not the first try at VR. Uh, Nintendo had tried it in the 8-bit days. So, uh, what we're seeing is the second generation. This is still not it. <laughs> if you look at people, they are still working for the, looking for the killer application that makes everyone need to have VR in their homes. And there isn't such application yet. Because basically when you put the VR goggles, you see a blurry mess. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the real world, it's, it's a blurry world. Uh, if you use glasses like myself, it's like seeing the world without your glasses. <laughs> uh, but for people that don't need glasses, it's a terrible experience. It's funny at the beginning, but it wears off pretty fast. Uh, augmented reality is a different beast. Uh, I think it requires much less hardware, and if you have normal glasses with an add-on that actually projects on the glasses or, or on your retina directly, whatever you need to see, it will work, it will be cheaper and require much less computer power. So I think two different worlds here. We are going to see VR really kick off in the next couple of years with the next generation of hardware, but we are going to see augmented reality kick off as we speak, basically. Uh, whenever people are seeing this podcast, some killer applications will appear in app stores and people will get into it. I have no doubt about it. Cool. So my last three questions for you are the questions I usually ask when we have a guest, which is, what is your current coolest project? It's a plug. Feel free to do it. So your turn. I'll ask them one by one. It's easier than ask them all. Okay. The so what's your coolest current my, project? My current coolest project uh, is making my next game, personally. Uh, there's a thing called the Godot engine, uh, which is a game engine built with open source in mind, which is amazing. It's the first open source engine, game engine, hmm. that actually beats their commercial counterparts in a lot of areas, including being very easy to use. So everyone that wants to get into gaming and earn a couple of thousand dollars, this is the time. Uh, and when I mean a couple of thousand dollars, I really mean it. Uh, I sold Sudoku Live, the, the Sudoku game, by way more than my house costed. Okay? So, we're talking real money, and I worked for four weeks on it. That's pretty good return. So that should so, give you an idea so Paulo, how, how much it's worth. So, Paulo, in instead of just uh, buying GPUs for uh, crypto mining, you can actually buy them and develop develop games. <laughs> of course. Uh, let, me give you, let me give you a very simple example. Do you remember the arcade game Frogger? Yes, yes I do. Yeah, obviously. Okay. Crossy Road, which is a, a 3D version of Frogger, actually very poorly done, has sold millions of copies on the App Store. That means millions of dollars. Okay? Because the game sells for, I think, are three bucks or something mm -hmm. like that, and they sold millions. So we're talking about three times, three bucks uh, multiplied by millions of sales. Mm -hmm. A game like Crossy Road is something that you can actually pull by yourself alone with those 
actually awful graphics that it has <laughs> in weeks okay so anyone that knows how to program a computer can actually do this and there's a lot of money to be gained uh, just a word of warning don't go for anything uh, more advanced than converting an 8-bit arcade or a tetris <laughs> game because you'll fail miserably uh, if you try anything more complex than that it's a job for teams of thousands of people basically yeah uh, so my second question for you is, in your opinion, what do you believe are going to be the three biggest changes technology will cause and what will they impact in the next, say, three to ten years? So short term, long term. Uh, I actually, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll give you two that uh, are in my mind right now. Uh, first AI. AI is going to change the world. Uh, some people view it as a dangerous dangerous thing, like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk. And I have no doubt that the train is unstoppable. Okay, So it's going to happen in our lifetime. Uh, that's going to have a huge impact in our lives. For instance, I don't believe that in 30 years people will allow any human uh, to drive a car. Because it's way too dangerous, computers are much more efficient than humans, and someone, some human behind the wheel will look like crazy for the next generation. What? You guys have a wheel in your car and you drive it at highway speeds? Uh, that's going to happen in our lifetime, okay? Uh, and it's going to be fast, terribly fast. Uh, people like, like us are actually going to notice that the world is changing before our eyes. That's one of the things that I know will change our life. The second is genetics. I think we are a generation or so uh, from immortality. Uh, I don't believe it will happen in our lifetime. Singularity? The seeds for it. The, not the singularity as the... I, I don't recall its name. The, the guy from Google uh, actually uh, is, uh, has a vision that it will happen in 40 years or mm -hmm. so. Something like that. Uh, no, I think it will be later. I think it will be when our sons or kids... Uh, get way beyond our age but I believe immortality is there and with it a new set of challenges what happens to humanity if no one dies hmm. I think we have a problem of overpopulation as it is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now imagine people living okay, forever uh, or starting by living 200 years or so I think it will be a real challenge I don't know where we are going to put people. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we'll colonize Mars and make it a second, a second Earth that sooner. Or better saying, I think that we'll have colonies on Mars, but we are not going to have it terraformed. So it will be an hostile environment for smaller colonies. So I'm really worried about it. Uh, and I really worry about it because the Earth cannot sustain a, a human species that, that is already a plague in numbers that, for instance, triple the current levels of population. I don't think it's possible at all. It's not a matter of technology or anger or not producing food. Yeah, we can probably get around those. Just imagine a world, uh, like you've seen in Blade Runner, where all the streets are constantly packed. And there are three times more people in every street, in every store, in every alleyway. 
even if money isn't a problem and our society is wonderful, just a sheer amount of people will create a ton of new problems. So what you're saying is that we should send everyone to London on vacations to get practice for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, because yeah. that's your typical day. That's your yeah. typical day in London. You, it should be yeah. mandatory to spend, you know, a couple of hours in Oxford Street or Regent Street after 5 p.m. Or go to Tokyo. Try to use the subway in Tokyo, which is a wonderful experience with guys in uniforms pushing people just. So they can get through the door. <laughs> uh, Paulo, and before I ask my last question, let me first thank you very, very much for participating in the episode with us. It was an absolute pleasure interviewing you and having you here with us. Um, so my last question for you is, what book, podcast, series, whatever, would you recommend to our listeners? Okay, starting with the podcast. Uh, I would recommend the Johnny Lee Dumas podcast. Uh, interviewing entrepreneurs, uh, if nothing else, by the sheer variety. Uh, meaning, uh, I don't like several of the episodes, I really love some of the episodes, but uh, the fact that you can know new entrepreneurs and new business ideas and new business concepts in those numbers, and the guy has several hundred episodes released, it's amazing to me. Uh, I, I love it. I think everyone should actually look at whatever stuff, weird stuff people are doing elsewhere. Uh, so in podcasts, I, I will stick with that one. Uh, book. Okay, uh, I'll have to stick with the one I'm reading right now, which is Fire and Fury. The American Odyssey in the, in the first year of the White House. Uh, and what I can tell you is that it's disgusting. It's the most disgusting book I ever read, and everyone should read it. Because even if it's not 100% accurate or real, when you imagine a guy that is no smarter than a fifth grader running the White House, it's an unbelievably crazy world. Okay? Uh, and the descriptions that people that actually work with him and the writer of the book has spent the entire year inside the White House at the invitation of Trump himself, the experience related in the book are the scariest thing I ever saw and the most disgusting things I ever saw. Uh, the picture doesn't look good for Trump in this book. <laughs> Let me just tell you that. But everyone should read it. Uh, what was the other one that uh, you wanted? A series or something else. Oh, a series. Uh, okay, I'm 100% in love with the Game of Thrones series. Uh, it's on a yacht right now. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm loving Star Trek. I'm the new a one? huge Trek fan. Yeah, the new it's one. It's great, right? I'm a huge Trekkie. I love... I've seen all the previous ones several times. Me too. I love that universe, and I love the new series. It's unbelievably good. Yeah, it's not the same Trekkie. People actually swear on this Trekkie. <laughs> there are guys kissing each other. Homosexuality is not a problem in the 25th, 24th century or whatever it is. Uh, it's di it's a different track. It's a more mature track, uh, but I love it. Yeah, and it's, it's great that they didn't ruin. I think it's the first time we have a very late redo of a very much loving series that they didn't ruin it. I can't remember the last time we had something like that. 
Oh, yeah, with Battlestar Galactica, which I also loved. Uh, you mean with Caprica that came out yeah. after? Yeah. I haven't watched. No, 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 not the Caprica one. Really, the Battlestar Galactica. One, the reboot of the series. Oh, okay. yeah. The real Battlestar yeah. Galactica. Because Capri Caprica, I didn't like it very much. No, no, no. Caprica was awful. Um, and just one, one last thing uh, on the topic you first mentioned of the guy that interviews multiple entrepreneurs. Have you had a look at Tim Ferriss, Tool of Titans, and his podcast as well? I had a look at him. Uh, I don't follow it. I don't follow it as regularly. But I see a lot of isolated episodes of podcasts. I, I actually love podcasting. I've done it myself through the years. I'm going to do it again at some point in the future. I'm sure about it. My problem is uh, there are limited things. There's a limited number of stuff that I want to talk about at a certain point in my life. So what I do is I'm going to podcast for six months. I'm going to say everything I want about a certain subject uh, and talk to the people I want to talk with and then I'll stop for a year or so. So you're going you're gonna to act like a series, you're going to go on hiatus, you, you produce half a yeah. year and you go on an hiatus and you bring back half a year again. Yeah, uh, and I had actually, I had Vitor on one of my podcasts uh, about the real utility and the real usage of the gadgets that we all have now, like iPads, do you use it for your real job? Or do you use it just as a giant iPhone whenever you're in the sofa at home? Uh, I love those topics, but there's a limited time that I want to revisit them. So I had that conversation with Victor and I'm not going to have it again with anyone for sure for during my entire lifetime. <laughs> again, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Thank Peter, you. as usual, it's a pleasure to also have you with me co-hosting this podcast. To our listeners, if you enjoyed, if you liked our episode, please subscribe and feel free to contact any of us on Twitter, Medium, Reddit, wherever medium you feel like. Thank you very much. Cheers.